Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the spiritual battle that we are in. And we have another couple of weeks to finish this section of Ephesians up and then eventually the book. And so my intent was to get through verse 16 today, but we won't make it. We'll get through 14 and 15, and then I'll be gone next Sunday, and Paul will be in my preaching in my absence, and then we'll pick this back up when I return. But just as a way of review in what we talked about last week, is that God has made a preparation for us in our spiritual battle. We have this admonition to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And we recognize that you and I do not possess a strength in and of ourselves to fight a spiritual battle. We just don't have the ability. There's no amount of discipline or self-effort or determination that will ever make us victorious in these spiritual battles. We must find our strength in the Lord and our union with Him and our relationship with Him and strength from the Lord as He does His work through us as we yield to Him and allow Him to fight the battles on our behalf. So there's a very specific instruction that we have that we see in verse 11, and that is that we must put on the armor of God. It is not there automatically. You and I have an intentional need to clothe ourselves with what God has provided. So it's a bit of a conundrum that God provides the armor. It is actually His armor, but you and I have a piece to participate in that by choosing to appropriate what God has provided and to put that on our lives in such a way that we will be able to withstand the battle that we are in. We have the ability to withstand the schemes and the attacks of Satan as we've looked at and we'll look at again in the future messages as we come out. But it come ahead as we but we look at the account in Genesis and we see the schemes of Satan. We remember that his role is to create doubt into what God has said. So when he confronted Eve, he said to her, Did God really say that? He also seeks to provoke defiance against God by saying, You will not die. There is no consequence for your sin. God is all bark and no bite. He doesn't really mean what he is saying. He seeks to deceive us so that we will disobey God. And what he said to Eve was, God knows in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That appealed to Eve. It sounded like a good thing. Yet we know that this brought about for them death. And that is his ultimate desire in our lives is that Satan would wreak havoc in us, that he would destroy us and beat us up in such a way that we are rendered useless in the purposes of God. Verse 12 tells us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. People are simply pawns or tools that Satan will use to bring about his purposes in this world. People will certainly come against us, but what we must remember is that they are not the enemy. The enemy is Satan himself, and so our passage gives us these ideas that There are dark forces, there are evil forces, there is wickedness that is operating in the spiritual realm all around us that we cannot see, that we may not be aware of, but it is reality of what's taking place. And Satan uses people as his pawns, as his tools, in this process of attacking the people of God and trying to thwart the purposes of God to be lived out through his children. These are spirit beings who were exiled from heaven with Lucifer, who work hard and long to carry out Satan's purposes and to fight against 
God's purposes. Verse 13 tells us that we have an advantage, however. God has made a provision. We have the armor of God. And through the armor of God, you and I have the ability to resist the temptation that comes against us, to withstand the battle that comes at us through the power of the Lord. Not our own, but through His power. We can be unmoved, assuming that we have done everything that we are supposed to do, as the verse tells us, so that we will be able to stand. We draw strength in the Lord, in our relationship with Him, in our union with Him, through daily communion with Him, and it is through that that we have the ability to be victorious. Let's look at our two verses today that we're going to spend the remainder of our time in. Ephesians 6, verses 14 and 15. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These are but three of the six pieces of armor that are described for us in the Word of God. And we must acknowledge that these are not words or terms that we throw around a lot, are are they? We don't talk about girding our loins. We don't talk about our feet being shod. So we need to understand what is intended to this audience and what it means for us as believers today. So we're going to look at this in just a couple of sections today. The first one is this, the mandate. The command that you and I have is to very simply stand in the Lord. We are to stand in Him. Verse 13 says, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14 says, therefore stand firm. Be unmoved. Be unwavering. Do not retreat. Do not shrink back from the battle. But stand strong in the Lord while you are receiving strength from the Lord. We are to receive strength according to the power of His might. Doing everything means that we are prepared to be in this battle because not only of our union with Him, but because of our daily communion with Him and our having been prepared before the battle begins. You know, when you think about military and you think about soldiers who are going out to battle, you know, they don't go out to battle and have all their gear back in the barracks, do they? They go into battle fully prepared, fully armed and fully ready to fight their enemy. And this is the idea that you and I have to have in our minds is this, is that it is our daily communion with God that is our doing everything, that is our preparation for being in this battle. The other piece that we need to remember here is that God is the one who fights on our behalf. As we have yielded ourselves to Him, as we have walked in obedience before Him, as we are being strengthened by Him and through Him, He's the one that fights the battle. I want to remind you, you remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath was a giant of a man. Through biblical accounts, we're told that he was over nine feet tall. It says that he wore a chainmail armor that weighed 125 pounds. The tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Think about swinging a sledgehammer that weighs 12 pounds all day long. He had a spear that the tip weighed 15 pounds. Every day he came out against the army of Israel and taunted them. He asked any and all comers to come at him to fight. And nobody would do it because he was an overwhelming enemy. He was a daunting opponent and nobody 
nobody would stand against Goliath. Then you have this little 15, 16 year old runt of a David who comes to the camp to see his brothers and he hears this guy taunting the nation of Israel over and over and over. And David says, what's going on here? Why won't anybody go out and fight this man? Well, he's nine feet tall. I mean, if you, if, if I were to stand next to Shaquille O'Neal, I would look like a dwarf, right? Shaquille O'Neal would look like a dwarf standing next to Goliath. Humanly, nobody would ever come against that enemy. So here's what we read. When David hears these words being shouted against the nation of Israel day after day and nobody responding, here's what David says. He says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have Taunted. You see, David understood that although this was a physical enemy, God was going to fight the battle for him. As you and I approach a spiritual battle of overwhelming magnitude, we need to remember that he is the one that fights the battle on our behalf. He fights that battle through us as we have been prepared, as we find our strength in him, and as we draw strength from him to face the enemy that we face. The mandate is very simply to stand. Now, there's a method of standing, and this is what we're going to look at today and the next time that we get into this. The method of being able to stand is to arm yourself. Now, again, this is a bit of a conundrum because it is God's armor. He is the one that supplies it. He is the one that actually appropriates it for us, yet there's a sense that we have to put this on. What that means is this. You cannot live your life independent of God, unconcerned about obeying God, doing whatever you want to do, and think that you'll be prepared to fight the battle, because you won't. It is in our preparation of spending time with him, that God enables us to put this armor on ourselves. We are to arm ourselves with what God provides. And as we looked at very early in our study, Paul is writing this letter while in prison in Rome and is very likely either chained to a guard, a Roman soldier, or he sees a Roman soldier right outside his cell and he draws some inspiration as the Lord is speaking to him about this armor. The command is to stand firm. The appropriation are these six pieces of God's armor, and these are communicated to us in exactly the way a Roman soldier would put these pieces on. I don't believe there's any coincidence to that. I believe this is the way it is supposed to be. Without all of these pieces, the battle would be risky and perhaps even foolish if we were not Fully armed. What Paul says is to put on the full armor of God. Not a piece, not parts of it, but all of the armor so that we can actually fight. So as the, we look at these three today, what we want to remember is this, that these are all in the past tense. Which means that this has already happened in some sense through our preparation. Here's what I've learned in my own life. The periods where I haven't walked in dependence, I haven't walked as closely as I needed to to be prepared for battle, I, find my, I found myself unprepared. Oh my goodness, I need to go back. I need to...
pray. I need to confess. I need to repent. I need to read. I need to obey. I need to do all of these things. And what I find out is that I'm losing the battle because I wasn't already prepared. So we need to think about it in that respect, is that these are past tense pieces of preparation that enable us to fight this battle. The first piece that we're going to look at is the belt of truth. Verse 14 begins, having girded your loins with truth. For a Roman soldier, the belt or the girdle is what holds everything else together. It is the centerpiece, even though it seems like, it might even look like, the most insignificant of the pieces of his armor. But it held everything together. In this day and age, people wore long robes or long cloaks or tunics. And when they were hurrying or running or working, they would often gather up that tunic and they would tuck it into their belt because that belt enabled them to be prepared for whatever they were going to do. So this idea of having girded our loins simply means this. To be girded means to be anchored in readiness. Before the battle begins, before you're even aware that there's a battle coming, there's an expectation that we are already prepared by being anchored in the truth, having girded your loins with truth. So in this presentation, truth has two meanings for us. The first one is this. It is the content of truth. When you talk about the truth, you're talking about the person of God. You're talking about who He is, His attributes, the reality that He is eternal and immutable, that He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, that He is sovereign and perfect and holy and righteous and just and faithful and loving and merciful. It is the truth about who God is. It is the truth of who Jesus is. It is the truth that we find in God's Word and all that it tells us about Him and about ourselves and about our need for Him. It's what the Word tells us about how we are to live our lives, how we are to please Him, how we are able to bring honor and glory to Him. It is the content, the truthfulness of the Gospel message that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus left His rightful place in heaven and was born of a Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, was buried and was raised on three days later. It is the truth about who God is. It is the truth about what God has done. That's one part of what this means. The second part is this. It is the application of truth. It isn't just enough to know the truth, but we are called to apply the truth to our lives. There is a theoretical benefit of knowing the truth, but there is a practical benefit of applying the truth to our lives. How has the truth of who He is of what He has said and what He has done been applied to my life. Oh, I've asked Jesus to save me from my sin and I've prayed some kind of prayer or commitment to Him, but there's a difference between being saved and walking in the presence of the Lord, obeying Him and allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. It's a very different thing. The truth about God never changes, but the truth about God and our response to that will change us. And so the application of truth in our lives is measured in our commitment to it. I've often heard this said, and I've said it many times myself, it isn't how much you know, it's how much of what you know you are applying to your life. 
Because if you know all the great truths about who God is and about what God has said and about what Jesus has done and you don't apply any of it to your life, it benefits you nothing because you have not applied the content of that truth to your life. We can know that something is true and not apply it and the benefit of that truth does nothing to it. You know, we know that we should eat a balanced diet. And we know that we should exercise with some regularity to have fitness in our life so that our bodies will function the best that it can. We know that smoking is bad for us and it's going to kill us. And yet if we don't apply those truths to our lives, what will be the benefit of knowing about diet and exercise and the dangers of smoking or any other type of vice? The reality is this. We must apply the truth of who God is to our lives in such a way. And when we do that, it means that we have anchored our life in the truth of who He is, and it is demonstrated by a growing commitment to applying the truth to our lives. It is self-discipline. It is constant obedience. It is confession and repentance when God makes us aware of our sin. It is the discipline of walking in submission to the Lord. Psalm 51.6 says this, Behold, you, God, desire truth in the innermost being. Not theoretical in the head, not intellectually, but in the inmost being. We know the truth and possess it in such a way that our lives are built around it. As we looked in Ephesians chapter 4, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It is applying the truth of God and God's word to our lives in such a way that our life becomes anchored by it. It is the centerpiece of our armor. Number two, we have the breastplate of righteousness. And having girded your loins in truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, it's a past tense reference here that we have already put this on. For a Roman soldier, a breastplate was a tough, sleeveless garment that was often made of leather or a very thick linen. And they would sew to that slivers of an animal's hoof or a horn, or pieces of metal to add a greater degree of protection. This breastplate would cover the entire torso and often included some kind of a backplate so that there would be front and back protection of these vital organs. Some of these breastplates were made from armor which would be formed or hammered to fit the soldier very specifically. So by protecting the spiritual organs... As the soldier went into battle, he could withstand superficial injury, but some kind of an attack to those vital organs was going to render him ineffective and perhaps even dead. And so this breastplate was critically important to protect a soldier. So for you and I, our spiritual vital organs are our mind and our emotions. The Bible often describes this as the heart or the bowels. It communicates our inmost being. It is the center of our life. And so the breastplate of righteousness, it protects these vital elements of our lives, which Satan attacks in the form of our mind and 
our emotions. In contrast to the truth about who God is and what God has done, Satan has created a world system, a sinful environment by which he tempts us to think wrong thoughts and to feel wrong emotions. Our thoughts and our emotions will often lead us astray. Have you ever heard somebody, hey, just follow your heart? Have you heard someone say that? When you hear that say, wrong, don't do that at all. In fact, don't follow your heart because your heart will often lead you astray. Satan wants to cloud our minds with false doctrine, false principles, false information in order to mislead us and to confuse us. He'll do that by distorting what God has said and by, by deceiving us into thinking that what God has said, He didn't really mean. He wants to confuse our emotions and thereby pervert our affections, our morals, our loyalties, our goals, and our commitments. He desires to take the truth of God out of our minds and replace it with His own perverse Ideas. You know, it shocks me when I hear someone say, well, you know, I prayed about this and I believe that it's really okay. I think God is okay with that. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have the ability to use an eraser to scribble out things in my Bible because I believe that God has given me a license to disobey Him through prayer. God doesn't do that. God will never lead us to disobey His Word. Our minds and our emotions will often lead us outside of the revealed Word of God, and to doing these things that are going to be potentially damaging to us. Satan wants to laugh, wants us to laugh at our sin rather than to mourn over it. He wants us to rationalize our sin rather than confess it and bring it to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. He seeks to undermine pure living and replace it with immorality and greed and envy and hate and every other vice. He seduces us to become so used to sin that it can be in us and all around us and our conscience isn't bothered by it at all. This is what Satan wants to do. It is the breastplate of righteousness that protects us from this kind of attack. To put this on means to be clothed in readiness. Already being prepared by the content of truth and the application of truth to our lives. So as we think about being clothed with the breastplate of righteousness, there's two ways for us to understand righteousness. Number one is it is the righteousness of Christ. When you and I get saved, the very righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is put on us in the spiritual places. And so when God the Father looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. This is our spiritual position. Practically, however, you and I are not holy and righteous. So this impugned righteousness that every believer enjoys at the moment of our salvation, as expressed in 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We are permanently clothed in the righteousness that Christ has imputed to us through all eternity and through all our lives on this earth. We will always have the impugned righteousness of Christ. This righteousness protects us from the penalty and the consequence of hell, but it does not in and of itself protect us from Satan in this present life. 
Paul is asking us to put on something that we have already been clothed with doesn't make sense. Paul is telling us to put on this breastplate of righteousness that is not found in the righteousness of Christ, but rather in the righteousness of life. It is our practical righteousness. It is the process of sanctification. It is the process of being made holy as He is holy. This is the holiness of daily living. It is in living a daily obedience to the truth of, to the truth of who God is and doing what God has called us to become in Christ. Now, Paul makes a very clear distinction between the two as we look in Philippians chapter 3. He connects the impugned righteousness of Christ to the practical righteousness that is to be lived out in our life. Here's what he says in Philippians 3.9. He prays, he prays, he says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ in righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so this is what Paul is talking about. I cannot earn the righteousness of Christ. I don't deserve the righteousness of Christ. It has been very, very simply given to me through my faith in him. But what Paul goes on to talk about is this impugned righteousness is to be lived out or to be worked out in our lives and daily living so that our positional clothing, the impugned righteousness of Christ, is being lived out in the practical clothing of being prepared for battle through righteous and holy living. Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained it, perfectness, holiness, righteousness, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That is the eventual sanctification that comes the day we enter into heaven. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. God has covered me in His righteousness, and it is my daily conviction and commitment and determination to live that out in my life in such a way that I am becoming more like Him every single day that I live. The righteousness of Christ that has been put on us makes practical righteousness possible, but only obedience to the Lord makes practical righteousness a reality. Do you and I have the ability to become righteous in our daily living? We absolutely do. Will we do it if our life isn't anchored, centered in the truth about who God is and what God has done and to live in light of that truth by applying it to our life? Will we become righteous? No, we will not. We have to live out what God has made available to us and what God has clothed us with for all of eternity, the very righteousness of Christ. Wrong beliefs, wrong ideas, wrong conclusions lead to unrighteous living and it produces a porous breastplate. Rather than it being thick and solid and secure, it's like Swiss cheese. All manner of objects can penetrate that and create damage to the soldier. Wrong affections, wrong loyalties, wrong morals lead to unrighteous living, which results in a weak breastplate, not able to withstand the attacks of our enemy. 
We may do what we think is right. We may often do what we feel is right. But neither of those may be consistent with the truth of God's word. We read in Peter, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Just because it feels right, just because it sounds right, doesn't mean that it is right. Romans 6, 12 and 13, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is what practiced righteousness looks like in our life. You know, you and I don't get to define what sin is. God has already done that. We cannot arbitrarily pick and choose what we accept as sin and what we excuse as just the culture. But make no mistake about it, when we are living an unholy and an unrighteous life, our breastplate will not protect us in the battle. What gives us a strong breastplate is knowing that we are living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, not perfect, but pleasing to the Lord. One that is filled with submission to His Lordship, not perfectly, and obedient to his word and his will. Not perfectly, but applying what you know. You don't have to be a super Christian to have a solid breastplate. You just need to be a submitted and an obedient Christian to have a solid breastplate. We need to continue to learn about who God is. We need to continue to learn about what God has done for us and how that is to affect our life. And as we do that, we grow in our lordship and we, we grow stronger in our walk with him and our ability to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Number three, not only the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, but the gospel of peace. Verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Again, words we don't use very often, but remember that this is also a past tense reference. Having shod your feet, already having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Footwear is a critical element of a soldier's armor. Footwear is important in all facets of life. You know, if you look at athletes, for example, you have tennis players that might wear one shoe for a hard surface. He might wear a second shoe for a clay surface. He might wear a third shoe for a grass surface. Football and baseball players change their footwear based upon the surface that they're playing on. So footwear is very, very important in our lives. It's important in the life of a soldier because a soldier is going to climb on rocks. He's going to traverse through streams and over all kinds of obstacles, thorns and thistles. His feet need to be protected. And a soldier's feet that are blistered and cut and swollen and sore are going to make him very challenged in the battle. In fact, if he can't stand, if he can't advance, he probably is not going to do well and perhaps could even be killed and battle. Soldiers are always taught how to take care of their feet. And all the Vietnam things I've seen on TV, they'll tell you this. You better take care of your feet. You get the foot rot and you are done. You can't run. You can't stand. You can't advance if you cannot have your feet protected. So a Christian's spiritual footwear is equally important in his warfare against the schemes 
of the devil. Now, here's what's important. If we have carefully girded our loins with truth, and if we have put on the breastplate of righteousness, but we do not properly shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we are destined to stumble and fail and suffer many feet. Here's why. The shod means to bind under or to securely fasten. To shod means to bind under or to securely fasten. Spiritual footwear for the Christian is the gospel of peace. And so what we are to do is we are to bind under our feet, if you will, the gospel of peace. It is to be securely fastened to us so that we can go and do what God has called us to do. So there's a little confusion about what this might mean. There's actually two options for us here. First option is this. The feet refer to the spreading of good news. There's a reference to the feet that spread the good news, and Paul is actually quoting here from Isaiah 52, verse 7, which reads, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. So there is a connection to our feet being shod with the gospel of peace, meaning the Great Commission, meaning sharing our faith. But in our context, what is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about fighting spiritual battles. He's not talking about preaching. He's not talking about evangelism. He's not talking about teaching or preaching. It's about protecting your feet. Sharing our faith is important and obedient to what God has commanded us to do, but it is not the focus of what Paul is talking about here. So letter B, what Paul is talking about here, is feet that are standing firm in the gospel. Not feet that are spreading the good news, but feet that are standing firm in the good news. You know, we learn in Romans chapter 5 that before Christ, the unsafe person is helpless, he's ungodly, He's filled and ruled by sin, and he is an enemy of God. But the good news of the gospel is that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Colossians chapter 1, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We who used to be the enemies of God, we who used to be alienated from God, now have peace with God. We are to stand firm in the message of the gospel that we are now at peace with him. When our feet are shod with the gospel it means we stand in the confidence of God's love, of his indwelling, of our eternal union, and in his commitment to fight for us. Since we are now at peace with God, God is on our side. Just as God fought the battle for David, there are many other examples of how God has fought the enemy for his people. Think about the ten plagues in the nation of Egypt when he was trying to get his people free. Think about the walls of Jericho that tumbled when they blew the trumpets. Think about the conquest 
of the promised land. Think about the battle of Gideon, 300 against 10,000. Think about the book of Acts when Peter walked out of a Roman cell when he was chained to a prisoner. The reality is this, is that God fights our battles for us. We experience the strength of the power of His might when we are prepared in our daily communion with Him. And when we are in our daily communion with Him, standing firm, we can stand against any spiritual foe because God is on our side and He fights the battle for us. We read in Romans chapter 8, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, then who is against us? The reality is it doesn't matter because God's on our side. God is going to fight the battle. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long, but we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is on our side. He will fight our battles for us. But we will experience the strength of His might as we are being prepared by our lives anchored in the truth of who He is, applying it to our lives, living a holy and a righteous life, standing firm in the truth about who He is and what He's done for us through Christ. We are at peace with God through Christ. We have an eternal union with Christ. And so having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel means that we stand firm in His presence, knowing that He is on our side. How strong do you feel? to stand against the schemes of the evil one. You know, the bottom line is this, is that if we are just living a Christian life on our own, tipping the hat to God, if you will, reading and praying in crisis mode, not submitting, not committed, we are likely unprepared for battle. He's made everything available to us, but if we aren't walking with him in dependence to him, we will not be prepared. Have you found yourselves up against some kind of a spiritual attack and not been able to fight it off? We're not prepared. We'll look at these other pieces next as we look at the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and how those relate to the attacks that the the enemy brings against us. But my friend, if we are not spending time with him, if we are not yielded before him, we're going it alone. And if we're going it alone, we will not experience the strength of the power of his might. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given us victory in these spiritual battles. And Father, for those of us that might be fighting spiritual battles that we are completely unaware of, how I pray that you would open up our eyes to this reality. That we would sense more than ever a great need to be yielded before you. Having our lives anchored in the truth about who you are and what you've done for us about being committed to righteous living, to appropriating the righteousness of Christ into our lives in such a way that we are being changed and conformed into the image of our Savior. Father, teaching us to stand firm in our union with you. 
God, I pray that you would grow our desire to know you, to spend time with you, that you would sharpen our understanding of how desperately we need to be in your word. God, thank you for the provision that you've made. Thank you that even though we are not perfect and don't execute our faith in you perfectly, you still fight for us. You still protect us and make every provision that we need. May you find in us a desire to honor and please you and to be soldiers who are willing to wage the battle. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.